Hello and welcome to Beth Kuhn and Spiritual Seasons. In this group of teachings, we are studying the weekly Torah portions in annual Moedim through the lens of God's pattern of salvation. This week, we pause the Torah readings once again to focus on the major festival of Sukkot, also called the Feast of Tabernacles or Tents or Booths. Sukkot is one of the richest and most involved of the Moedim, and there's a lot to say here. We're just going to scratch the surface today, but we'll touch on some of the major centers of thought surrounding the Moed. Let's start with the question, what is a sukkah? A sukkah is a temporary dwelling. In modern Israel, you can see sukkot of many types. Sukkot is the plural of sukkah. But, um, so you can see many types in Israel, but most are made with thin white metal bars that lock together. They kind of snap together to make big three-dimensional rectangles or cubes. Before the bars are locked together, curtains with top and bottom loops that run the length of the curtains are slid over the top bar and the bottom bar, and that makes the walls. Bamboo or rattan roofs are loosely affixed to the tops or just branches or, or palm branches maybe, and the Sukkot are decorated with foliage and fruits and potted plants and flowers and sometimes even twinkling lights. Maybe there's even a light fixture hanging from the center. A rug might be put down and furniture is placed inside, including a table and chairs. <clears throat> Sukkot, um, they pop up everywhere in Israel, in yards. It's kind of fun to see how creative they can be with their spaces. But you'll see them in suburban yards or on balconies, on uh, apartment buildings, uh, sometimes even in the streets. Even hotels will put up a a large Sukkot, uh, a large sukkah in the parking lot for those who happen to be traveling during the holiday. And so at night in the big cities across the country, you can see Sukkot lit up from the inside, sometimes on rooftops. It's just unlike anything you will see anywhere else in the world. Sukkot is a very joyous festival. And that's really central to the commandments even of Sukkot, to be joyous. Well, let's start diving in now, speaking of the commandments, uh, by reviewing the basics. We're told that Sukkot is to start on the 15th of the seventh month. So that's the full moon of the seventh month. And it is to last for seven days. But it gets a little complicated. We're also told that there is an eighth day that is something like a closing of Sukkot. Though this eighth day seems separate from the other seven days. The eighth day is called Shemini Atzeret. And it's both connected to Sukkot and separate from it. The Torah clearly mentions seven days for Sukkot. And then it talks about this eighth day. Although in Deuteronomy, when uh, this is repeated, the eighth day is not mentioned at all, even. And the sacrifices at the temple on this eighth day of Shemini Etzeret, they don't follow the pattern of the rest of the seven days of Sukkot. So the sages have clearly stated that though the eighth day is related to Sukkot, it is a separate moed on its own. And so although we talk of seven, annual Moedim, there's kind of an eighth here with Shemini Etzeret. 
And we are given more instructions for these two Moedim, um, more than we're given for some of the other days. The first and eighth days are special Shabbats, and they're days of holy convocation. No work is to be done on these days, but food can be prepared. Uh, the main commandments that distinguish Sukkot are, one, the commandments uh, to dwell in a sukkah for seven days, and two, to take up four types of plants in one's hands and rejoice before the Lord. So there we see that root commandment to rejoice before the Lord on this moed, to be joyful. And the joy is partly connected here to the fact that this is also called a harvest celebration. It's called, another name for it is the Feast of Ingathering. And so regarding dwelling in Sukkot, God does give a reason for this commandment. He says that your generations may know that in Sukkot I made the sons of Israel dwell when I brought them forth from the land of Egypt. And uh, so in a way, it's a way to say, remember your humble origins, Israel, and remember what your ancestors went through to respond to God's calling. And so now that you're here rejoicing before the Lord in your harvest, Remember that you didn't start that way and give glory to God for getting you to this place. It's important to God that when we are blessed physically, we acknowledge him. So that's a big idea in Sukkot. When you're blessed, acknowledge him. Uh, Sukkot is the third of the three pilgrimage festivals, the, the big three, right, which are unleavened bread, and then Shavuot, and here Sukkot. And um, on the three, so we're talking about commandments here, each man, each Israelite man, is to appear before Adonai in Jerusalem with voluntary offerings according to how each family has been blessed. Well, let's go back to that other commandment, uh, which is actually given first that's so unique to Sukkot, to take up those four species of plants. And so these are described for us, and they are the, um, the first one is the fruit of splendid or beautiful trees, and then the branches of palm trees. So fruit of beautiful trees, palm branches, and then the boughs of leafy trees, and Willows of the brook. So two are very specific. There are the willows and the palm branches. And then we have the fruit of the beautiful trees and the boughs of leafy trees. Well, the rabbis um, have come to associate each of these four with very specific types of plants. And when they look at the four and they look at how they are to be grabbed up together and, and rejoiced before the Lord. They're shaken in all four directions. Um, they see certain differences in each of the species that lead them to connect the four species to four different types of Jew. And so there are different combinations of these two qualities, the learned or the unlearned, you know, those who study Torah and are familiar with Torah, for example, and then those who have good works and those who don't 
So you can be learned in the Torah but not have good works. Or you could have good works and not be learned in the Torah. You could have both or you could have neither. And so this is four types of Jewish person. And the point is that they are bound together as one and they're lifted up together to rejoice before the Lord. And so the phrase is that they are brought together and they atone for each other. What this one is lacking, that one has. But together they're one. And so they cover each other. They atone for each other. And uh, so this is a kind of connection to the previous moed of Yom Kippur. Kippur means covering. And so at Yom Kippur, Yeshua's blood covers us. While here at Sukkot, maybe we can see a little bit of uh, the idea of a, a maturation happening, a learning that's been happening. So it starts with Yeshua. And here at Sukkot, we cover each other. We atone for each other, like those four species atone for each other. And so, the ones with knowledge um, and works cover the ones who lack one or both of those. The willow is the one that's said to uh, represent the person who doesn't have either one, doesn't have the Torah knowledge, doesn't have the good works, But that willow must be included with the rest or else it's not a valid lulav. That, you know, the the three species and together with the etrog, which is the fruit of the beautiful tree, that the three together are called the lulav. It has to have the willow as part of it. And so the four species are very much teaching about unity within the body. So this is a big theme of Sukkot. Unity within the body. Well, for each day, special food offerings are to be brought at the temple, both by the priesthood on behalf of the whole nation and by individuals, right? They're to be bringing their own individual offerings according to how they've been blessed. But the priests are there doing offerings on behalf of everybody, and these are specified in the Torah. And the numbers of animals offered by the priests each day are unusual compared to the other Moedim. And so what it has in common, what the days of Sukkot have in common with the other ones is one goat. Okay, one goat offered each day of Sukkot. Well, that's like the other ones. Where it's different is the rams and the sheep are doubled. It's on Sukkot, it's two rams every day and 14 sheep, I think it is, every day. And... The bulls are usually one or two bulls for the other Moedim. On Sukkot, that number is just increased uh, manyfold to a total of 70 bulls, seven zero, 70 bulls offered over the seven days. And so on the first day, it's 13, and that descends by one each day. The second day is 12, the third day 11. And... Finally, you get to the seventh day and seven bulls are offered. But when you add all those up, it's 70. Shemini Etzeret doesn't follow that. And uh, it doesn't follow these rules for the rest of the animal offerings. There's only one bull on, uh, offered on Shemini Etzeret. And so the bull out of the animals is the most physical the most robust, maybe we could say, of the animals for offering. It's the physically largest 
and the strongest and the most capable of doing powerful work. The sages have said that these 70 bulls, right, we, we're familiar with this number of 70 in regards to the 70 nations. And so they say these 70 bulls represent the 70 nations, which in size are larger and in many ways more powerful than Israel. Um, although um, not more powerful spiritually, Israel is to be the head spiritually of all the nations. And so that 71st bull that is offered on Shemini Atzeret is said to represent Israel itself. In Zechariah 14, we are told that in the future, if a nation doesn't send representatives to Jerusalem at Sukkot, specifically at Sukkot, to worship the king, to worship God, God will send drought and plague on that nation. So this incorporation of the nations. This is another big theme of Sukkot, and we get there partly through these 70 bowls that are offered over the course of the seven days. Well, other than taking up the four species and bringing these um, special offerings, uh, the priests bringing these offerings, we are not told more about how we rejoice before the Lord during Sukkot. And so the Jewish bride has stepped up to bring forth a truly magnificent set of traditions for rejoicing um, that was carried out when the temple was standing and will certainly be carried out again when the temple is rebuilt. And that will be a wonderful day. Um, So let's talk about some of these traditions here. Now we've talked about the basic commandments there. Well, part of the tradition, and this is for rejoicing before the Lord, involves a water-drawing ceremony wherein water is taken from the Gihon Spring. That's the water source, the only natural water source for Jerusalem. And it's, this water is poured out on the altar along with each morning's wine libation. So according to the Mishnah, it says, He who has not seen the rejoicing of the place of the water drawing has never seen rejoicing in his life. The water drawing uh, started the night before and went all night long, this whole ceremony, all night long, culminating in the actual taking of the water from the spring in the morning. So four 75-foot-tall menorahs, imagine that, 75-foot-tall menorahs, Four of them were lit in the court of women. The wicks for the massive bowls of oil were made from worn-out linen garments of the priests. The light was so great from these four menorahs that it illuminated all of Jerusalem. It must have been such a sight. The city's hills would have glowed and they would have been visible for miles and miles around. The light was to facilitate All night, dancing and singing and rejoicing, balconies were set up for the women to watch from above as the sort of the white-bearded elders maybe were dancing and rejoicing down below before the Lord. And some of them were even doing acrobatics and juggling. It's said that Rabbi Gamliel, maybe it's the same one that was Paul's rabbi, but he would, uh, he's said to be the famous one, would juggle eight flaming torches at once 
and never would one torch touch another. Can you imagine? The Levites were there and they would be playing flutes and lyres and cymbals and all sorts of instruments and the people would sing. This went on all night with the people just resting their heads on someone's shoulder, maybe for a quick cat nap here and there. And when the sun started to come up, a mighty trumpet blast would announce the beginning of the water drawing ceremony itself, and everyone would head to the Cajon Spring to witness a priest plunge a golden pitcher into the water for the water libation. And this was accompanied by a special reed flute of Moses, it was called, so music, more music. Well, in modern times, without the temple, the sukkahs are filled with much singing and eating, and many guests are invited over to fill each sukkah. And a special tradition has been added to the eighth day, to Shemini Etzeret, for rejoicing rejoicing over the Torah as the end of Deuteronomy is completed, and the scrolls are rolled back to the beginning of Genesis once again. This is called Simcha Torah. In Israel, Simchat Torah is synonymous. It's the same day with Shemini Etzeret. But in the diaspora, which usually doubles each of these days, um, this rejoicing of the Torah, the Simchat Torah, is the day after Shemini Etzeret. So it can get a little confusing there. <clears throat> but starting in the evening of Simchat Torah, so the Erev of the day, The Torah scrolls are taken out in the synagogues and paraded around. They're paraded around the synagogue seven times, seven circuits, with much singing and rejoicing. But it's not that simple. It can take hours because men will take up the Torah and they will dance with the scroll um, on on their way around. Sometimes they'll even take the scroll out into the streets And uh, the women often dance in circles with each other in the the Orthodox groups. I I guess they're mixed circles in the conservative and others. Um, But it must be just quite a sight to see. And the children will join in or they'll be put on top of shoulders so that they can see what's going on and take part. They're also given candy to associate sweetness with the Torah, right? This is a celebration of the end of the Torah cycle and the beginning of a new one. And so after those seven long circuits and the dancing and the singing, part of the last Torah portion is read, but but not quite to the end. So they're going to save that for the next morning. And the next morning, during the morning service, the scrolls are again taken out and they're again paraded around seven times, again with the dancing and the singing. And when those seven circuits are done. Finally, the last passages of Deuteronomy are read, and the scrolls are rolled back to the beginning, and immediately the first passages of Bereshit are read, and the Torah cycle begins again. Well, let's go a bit deeper into Sukkot now by linking it into the progression of the fall Moedim, which are Right, the fall in, in Tishrei here. These three are Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. And of course, you can add the fourth of Shemini Etzeret. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. Well, 
the groundwork for these three, you can never start, right? You know, everything's a circle. It's all connected. The groundwork for these three is laid in the month of Elul, which is the sixth month, which is a month of repentance. And that follows a time that we could call a time of stumbling or focusing on humanity's sin anyway. The stumbling of the high summer, which includes the period of the three weeks, focused on God's destruction of his own temple because of our sin. So in a sense, we can say that God turns his face away from us during the three weeks, and there is a separation. This separation is followed by that repentance of Elul in the sixth month. Repentance is a thread that connects Elul to especially the first 10 days of Tishrei, the seventh month, uh, which are also days of really intense repentance, the 10 days of awe. Well, altogether, the cycle of repentance is 40 days, 30 days of Elul, 10 days of Tishrei. Well, during the 10 days that start at Rosh Hashanah, a major shift happens in the calendar. The shift is described as the movement from arousal from above to arousal from below. The first six months of the year are arousal from above when God is active and he's taking a very active hand in rescuing us and raising us up through infancy and childhood and adolescence. As the second half of the year begins, we are now an adult and we respond to him. The one who first reached down to us with that hand of salvation. We love because he first loved us, it says in 1 John 4. Well, this second part of the year is also described as the returning light. So we've got the direct light from above and then the returning light in the second half. And so in the second half of the year, the bride begins stepping up to be the adult bride who acts with her own free will to bring from her heart a gift of herself to her groom. At the start of this period at Rosh Hashanah, humanity reaches up by crowning God king. This is a kind of our first way of reaching up. On Rosh Hashanah, we reach up to crown him king. And then we intensify our repentance, our repentance work during the 10 days because we're not yet brought back together. As much as me, we might want to say, we want you to be our king, there's been this separation, and we haven't been brought back together yet. So this reaching back upward, though, gets that ball rolling for that reconnection, and it gets the ball rolling for the next two Moedim, which is going to, we're going to find that reconnection in these two, Yom Kippur and Sukkot. So at Yom Kippur, God covers the sin, that has come between us through his son, Yeshua, and Yeshua's blood brought into the Holy of Holies, the heavenly Holy of Holies. And he makes with us a new covenant, giving us the Torah on the heart, which will strengthen us to walk faithfully, right? What's going to change with our first walk where we stumbled and this new walk after we're reconnected? Well, it's going to be a new covenant, the Torah written on the heart. Yom Kippur is seen as the center of a wedding ceremony that stretches from Rosh Hashanah through the end of Sukkot or Shemini Etzeret. Sukkot 
is um, like the celebration, the wedding celebration after the wedding is done. And Yom Kippur is really the center of that wedding. And so at Sukkot is when God comes to dwell with us through his son, Yeshua. He comes to lead us as both king and husband. So this wedding celebration, this this celebration after the wedding is when we associate with Yeshua coming and dwelling with us in the flesh. God in the flesh, you could say. And so the eighth day, Shemini Atzeret, is regarded as the day of consummating the marriage. And the modern reflection of this idea is the intimacy and the joy and the very physical expression of dancing with the Torah scroll on Simchat Torah. Um, Not studying the Torah scroll, but taking it up and dancing with it. And so the result of this is a pregnancy. The bride will spend the winter faithfully forming the body for the spiritual seed that's given to her. And um, so let's talk about that, that seed. One way that we can understand the three Tishrei Moedim is that all of them together form a three-part seed. So Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. We could, one way of looking at it anyway, is to say that these are a three-part seed. And on Shemini Atzeret, this day of the consummation of the marriage, all of that is combined and integrated and taken together on that eighth day, and it's internalized. It's internalized in us. And so I want to look now at how we can see three distinct layers to that seed, a spiritual aspect and a soulish aspect, and a body or a physical aspect. And these are going to equate three parts of a seed. If you actually look up a seed or remember studying in elementary school, they will probably have taught you that there are three main parts anyway to a seed. There's, there's a living part inside and then a food storage and then a coat, a, a hard shell to keep it all safe. Well, this seed too Uh, And remember, we looked at this in Nisan as well, a three-part seed of Pesach, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Here we're going to look at it as Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, spirit to body. Well, um, as with Nisan, uh, these three in uh, Tishrei, the seed is the seed of a journey. It's the seed of a seven-month journey that begins with the giving of these seeds. And the second one that begins here at Rosh Hashanah is the journey that takes us deep into the physical realm. Remember, this is the journey in the darkness. And so this whole second journey is going to focus on reaching down into the physical realm to elevate it, to give it a spiritual purpose. And God gives us the seed of that journey now with the great, you know, at the same time that this great physical harvest is coming in, September, October sometimes, the harvest 
the physical harvest, what the farmers are actually bringing in out there from the fields right now. It's not the naked seed like the grain harvest in the spring. It's different, this seed. And this reflects a different kind of a journey. It's fruit now, especially grapes and figs and pomegranates and dates and olives. These are flesh-covered seeds. And they're going to reflect a more physical type of a journey, a more physical type of a work that is ahead for us in this coming journey. So that journey through the darkness that's um, focused on the physical side, it includes first a cleansing of our individual physical vessel, our own bodies, and then a second stage, which is the building of the, the greater body. The, and the light going out, it's evangelical, and it goes out to the nations, and the greater body of believers is built up. So first our own bodies, our own flesh cleansed, and then the greater body. So two aspects to that journey there. <clears throat> and we can see those in um, Hanukkah and Purim. Well, now even though... Um, We will see that the three Moedim that make up the seed are indeed spirit, soul, and body. The emphasis here in Tishrei is on the last one of the three, the body, which is pictured at Sukkot. Sukkot is really the big festival here in Tishrei. Well, and that's reflecting this third phase, the physical phase, because it's primarily um, a work in the physical realm that's being done in the second journey. So let's start with Rosh Hashanah as the most spiritual of these three. How do we we see this? How do we see this spiritual quality to Rosh Hashanah? Or at least more, all of them have all the whole picture, to be honest. But um, they lean in a direction when they're compared to the other ones. And so how do we see this spiritual uh, quality relative to the others in Rosh Hashanah. Well, first, what's being expressed at Rosh Hashanah, Judaism considers to be very lofty levels of the soul, even higher than the neshama. And so these are the will, the desire, commitment, and faith. These are all said to be even higher than the neshama, Um, even higher than the intellectual self, which is the neshama, even higher than the head up above here are these qualities of will, desire, commitment, and faith. And so how do we express those? How do we express the will and the desire? We say to God, our desire, our will is for you to be our king. And so one way we're expressing this idea is through the blowing of the shofar. The shofar blast itself It's also just a very spiritual kind of expression. It's like a primordial voice, an ancient voice, the voice of the spirit as it moves through the ancient ram's horn. It's beyond words. It's above words. It's above conscious thought. The shofar expresses something to God from deep within us, deep within our souls. It's expressing something to God. And it also speaks back to us, too. It affects us in a very deep place within us. It changes you to hear that shofar blown on Rosh Hashanah. And um, 
even that imagery of the shofar is like, it's like the spirit filling and moving in the vessel. We're not given a lot of structure either for Rosh Hashanah. And this is also an indication of the sort of formlessness, uh, the, the formless quality of the day. This lack of a set God-given form is a reflection of Rosh Hashanah's great spirituality, spirit, the spirit sort of lacking form on its own. Well, the second of the three, Yom Kippur, has a soulish emphasis, we're going to say. The soul is the bridge, right, where, where the spirit and the body overlap. The soul is um, it's the connector between the spirit on the one hand and the body, the physical on the other. The mind and the emotions, which we associate with the, the soul, they're affected by both the spirit and by the physical world, right? Your thoughts might be affected by your belly. Sometimes we say, if you're hungry, um, it can also be affected by what's going on in your spirit. And so I'm going to basically list a number of ways now in which Yom Kippur, which is, remember, the middle of the three, the connector of the three being in the middle, um, how um, Yom Kippur has this idea of connection at its root. And so just listen for all these different connections, especially between the spirit and the body, the spiritual and the physical. Yom Kippur is focused on what the high priest is doing at the temple, right? Remember, the atonement process is what he's doing there at the temple for the people. Well, the high priest himself, he's the holy representative of humanity and the connection between God and mankind. Of course, we know that the earthly high priest is a mere reflect, reflection of the true high priest. Easy for me to say. Who is Yeshua? That, that earthly high priest, he's reflecting Yeshua, who was our heavenly high priest. Yeshua ministers in the spiritual temple above. And the temple itself is the place of connection between heaven and earth. Sometimes it's called the neck, right? This connection between the head and the body, the torso. It's also a very emotional day. And the emotions are connectors within the psyche. Rabbi Benzion Krasniansky describes Yom Kippur as a powerful moment when the soul is raw in the same way that one's soul is flowing with emotion during a wedding ceremony when two people are joined by the covenant of marriage. Emotions, um, like I said, they are they too are influenced by the head and by the, the body. And so they help to connect these two. And um, they really just help us to know what's um, going on sometimes in the deeper levels of our bodies and on in the surface of our bodies. And um, weddings are emotional moments. Again, one of the ways the rabbis talk about the three Tishrei Moedim is that they are one long extended wedding between God and mankind. And then that long emotional wedding, Yom Kippur is seen as that critical moment under the hoopah when the two souls are united, when the covenant is sealed, right? Weddings are, are about 
connection. And we see in the last teaching, the Yom Kippur teaching, or we saw in that teaching how it is that Yom Kippur is indeed connected to the establishing of a covenant between God and mankind, the new covenant specifically. Yom Kippur is the day that Moses uh, brings down the second set of tablets, the tablets that are not broken. The new covenant comes after separation and repentance, and it not only rejoins God and mankind in something like a marriage, but it also greatly deepens that relationship such that the relationship is stronger and deeper than before mankind stumbled and experienced separation from God. In Judaism, shuva, repentance, is the key to not only reconnection, but it is the great springboard to going higher even than someone who never sinned. And so this is another big theme of Sukkot, this idea of the Baal Teshuva, the, the Lord of return, the one who has fallen deeply into sin and then returned. And so the rabbis have a lot to say about the Baal Teshuva um, and about how that person who falls so low and returns is actually capable of of bouncing higher than the one who never sins, the, the Zadik, they say, the righteous one. And um, one way they talk about the Baal Shuva is that he or she is like the returning light, the reflected light, which is where the heat comes from. It's when the light is reflected from the land that it gives up its heat, not when it's coming first through the atmosphere. That's not when it's releasing its heat. It's not until it heats, uh, it, it hits the, that solid land surface that it gives up its heat. And that's why a valley is going to be hotter than the mountaintop. So the point here is that this deeper covenant, the new covenant, comes only after we go through a period of separation and repentance. And it results in a greater connection to God. So we've seen connection here in terms of the high priest, the temple, the wedding, the specific covenant of the wedding that makes our connection with God deeper than before we fell. So connection all over the place here at Yom Kippur. Okay, so we've had this very spiritual and ethereal and relatively less structured moment of Rosh Hashanah. And we've had this moment of all kinds of connecting at Yom Kippur. And connection is the realm of the soul. This brings us now to Sukkot, which is the most physical part of the three-part seed. As we begin here, recall that it is at Sukkot that God expresses himself to us tangibly through Yeshua. We can say that God himself puts on a body at Sukkot. We have several important clues that direct us to Sukkot as the time of Yeshua's incarnation, his birth, right? We're talking about Sukkot as the physical side here. Um, and so we have these clues that lead us to Sukkot and the incarnation of Yeshua, including the fact that the shepherds had turned loose the flocks into the fields. They only do that at a certain time of year in the fall. And... Another clue related to the timing of Zechariah's rotation for temple service, Zechariah being the father of John the Baptist. 
That clue regarding Zechariah leads us to a birth date for John the Baptist near Passover, which is interesting in itself. You know, we have these two sets of Moedim, one at, at Passover, one at, um, in Tishrei. And here we have John the Baptist maybe being born um, in Nisan at Passover. And that leads us to a birth date for Yeshua of six months later at Sukkot. We also have, um, as a third clue, linking Yeshua's birth to Sukkot, uh, a verse in John that says that Yeshua tabernacled among us, right? That word Sukkot, tabernacled among us. In fact, everything about Sukkot is emphasizing body and unity in the body and physical blessing and even just the basic dimensions of physical space and time, a cube, let's say, that defines physical space. So let's just continue listing some of these ways uh, the physical is emphasized here at Sukkot. We've already mentioned how at Sukkot the temple offerings are greatly increased. And what are they? They are they're beasts. They're, they're effectively meat on God's table, right? We're talking about the physical here. They are, these special sacrifices are doubled here at Sukkot. And the most physical of them, the bulls, are way more than doubled. They're multiplied many times. And uh, in a way, these 70 bulls, are, as we said, are the seed of salvation for, this, for the nations as the light goes out from Israel into the darkness of the world in this second journey in the year. That extended body of Israel, the nations, the nations, the extended body of Israel. And so beyond these 70 bulls indicating a physical emphasis here, we've also mentioned that Sukkot is a harvest festival, the ingathering from the fields. This great harvest is not only food to keep Israel alive physically, but it, it also is money, it's wealth. And so in, in a society that's primarily agrarian, the harvests are the foundation for the nation's wealth. And so that's another aspect to physical blessing and the physicality of Sukkot. They're bringing in the wealth for the year in a way, or at least this half of the year. So Rabbi Krasniansky points out that there's an irony here at Sukkot that is a warning to us about all this wealth we are bringing in. It's fascinating that at Sukkot, when the harvest is brought into the house, God ironically tells the people to leave the house and leave, um, leave that place where they've just brought this big harvest into and go live in tents. Again, this message is like the message of Parsha Ha'azinu and like the overall message of bringing thanksgiving offerings to God and bringing tithes to God. God sends you out of the house and says, when I've blessed you physically and you become comfortable, and this is what he's kind of saying to us by telling us to live in a sukkah. He says, when I blessed you, physically, and you become comfortable. Don't forget that I am the source of your bounty. It is I and only I that sustains you. Don't bind up your ego, your sense of self, and your wealth, because that's not where your real identity is. 
That mistake will only lead to misery and depression. And Rabbi Krasniewski points out that when we sit in the simple sukkah, we are separated from our wealth, and our sense of self is separated from that physical wealth. And we're happy, joyous, ironically, because we have nothing. And we are reminded of what really counts and who we really are. You know, it's not that wealth. That's, that's stuff. That's not who we really are. And we are really able at that point to welcome others and make them feel at home with us in our sukkah because ego isn't getting in the way as much. And everyone, you know, everyone equally has little in the sukkah. And we're all feeling, a, you know, sort of equally out of sorts, a bit out of our element in the sukkah but in a profoundly unifying way, we're very deeply in our element too. We're just all on the same footing there in the sukkah. And so we just welcome everyone to this strange experience, this strange and wonderful and intimate experience, intimacy with both God in the sukkah and with others there just singing and praising and talking Torah and and sharing our lives together. So continuing with the the physical emphasis of Sukkot, we have here strongly the idea of unity within the body. The kingdom, um, the building of a body, the building of a home, is in many ways the goal of the whole salvation process. And so we are seeing the seed of that here in Tishrei that we won't fully real realize until the end of the calendar. We're literally building, building a home at Sukkot, the Sukkah. And at the end of this whole thing, fast forward some months, we're building a spiritual kingdom that God dwells inside of, this bigger, wider body of the Messiah, really. And in our Sukkah, we so we're, so we're building. He, God puts us to work building at this time, and and that's a seed of of a greater building later. And in our sukkah, we also pick up the four species and we bind them together, which is a symbol of unity within the greater body of Israel, the unity of the greater body. And we invite guests into our sukkah and we live together with others in a way, and. Um, in that home that we have built. All of that is the seed that is picturing bigger things that is to come later. And um, another idea here, connecting Sukkot to the physical side, is the concept that the Sukkah (coughs) raises all of us and all that we do, all the mundane things, to a spiritual place. Remember that this upcoming journey, this walk through the darkness, involves digging into the mundane things of life and elevating them, all the little nits and, and, and bits of our lives, <clears throat> through Yeshua. This is Yeshua's specialty. Through Yeshua, um, the one who says, I don't come to, to destroy the Torah, I come to fulfill it. Well, how does he fulfill it? He fulfills it by showing us how to apply the Torah to all the branching areas, all the mundane areas of life. And he is the one who comes at Sukkot, this one who leads us in in lifting all these little pieces of our lives and filling them with meaning and spiritual purpose. 
And it's through Yeshua that we are able to apply the, the Torah in that way. And so God gives us Yeshua specifically to lead us in this whole second journey in a special way. He's always our leader in one way, but he leads us in a special way in this second journey. And um, this journey that's focused on the tangible. And so in a way we can think of, of Yeshua as the aspect of God that is the most tangible aspect of, of God. And so this lifting of the moon, exactly how do we see that in the sukkah? Well, um, the rabbis say that all of you goes into the sukkah, and you're completely surrounded by that sukkah, even the mud on your boots, they say. At Sukkot, you could be reading the newspaper, and if you're reading that newspaper in the sukkah, that becomes a righteous act as you fulfill the commandment to dwell in the sukkah. The sukkah completely surrounds you and contains you, even more so, they say, than the mikvah. You know, you're supposed to stay down under the water. Everything needs to be covered. Well, they say the sukkah, it covers you even more. How long do you stay in the sukkah? And how long do you stay under the water, <laughs> right? You can only be under there for so long. But, um, and so via, via that sukkah and this, you know, everything you do in there is for the purpose of fulfilling a Torah commandment to, to dwell in the sukkah. So all these little details of life are given a spiritual purpose. It's really quite a beautiful picture that is another facet of what we're heading into in this second journey in the process of salvation. Well, lastly, on this idea relating Sukkot to the physical side, let's note that Sukkot is the emphasized moed in this set of three, as we mentioned before. And Let's note here that that's different than what is emphasized in that group of three in the spring. Sukkot is um, Sukkot's the one that expands into seven days on this side, the Tishrei side. And this means that this whole seed, once again, in the fall is emphasizing the physical, the third step. But in the spring, um, it's the second moed of the three, unleavened bread that expands into seven days. And so it's the, the second in the spring, and it's the third in the fall that's emphasized. And this means that it's the soul that is being emphasized in that first journey. And so we can think about how that plays out at Shavuot and the giving of the Torah and this filling of the mind and through the three weeks and this Elul process of Shuva, this engaging of the emotions at that time. Well, so that's just to, that's just to say that within the seed there, we can see this soulish emphasis for the one journey and this physical emphasis for the other. Well, I want to shift gears here just, um, just a little now to hone in on the theme of building the house and of um, the Bible's use of three-dimensional space in general. This is something we might not be aware of, but we need to start to develop a sensitivity toward how the, the Bible sometimes wants to get just 
mention physical space in three dimensions. And um, that's meaningful for us. And this discussion kind of helps us to understand how that's meaningful for us when we read something like that in the Bible. And so we find this idea throughout the scripture, uh, and it's a part of Sukkot. This building in three-dimensional space is an end-time connected theme. And, um, and so when we see that in scripture, we need to be able to connect that. We're coming to the end of, of, of an epoch of time, maybe, when we're seeing that. And um, this building, maybe the building of a building, especially a building for God, like a temple, like the temple. And so, again, here at Sukkot, we're, we're actually building and enclosing a space with our sukkah. And, and remember that in Israel, they're, they're putting these wooden bars together. The frame, when it's put together, if it didn't have the curtains stretched onto it, looks, looks like a cube many times. And, um, and so this, this picture of building in three-dimensional space, this is uh, a seed picture for us here at Sukkot. And um, so let's start by pointing out here that the building is not the goal in itself. The building is a vessel for the life that is put into that vessel. We don't build a home for the sake of building a home. We build a home in order to have a place for the souls of the family to dwell in. And another way to say this idea is that the building or building a home is the fashioning of the vessel that is the physical partner and container for the spiritual beings that indwell the home. This is what um, the second journey in the year is all about. We receive truth in the first journey, and then we figure out how to walk it out in the nitty-gritty of our lives, as we said, through the physical vessels of the world and in those mundane spaces. So in this sense, building a home is really not not, um, exactly specifically constructing something with your hands, but it's really anything we do, anything we learn how to do in order to walk out the Torah practically in the physical world. And so God has given the bride the special skill to make the physical body the embodiment for the truth. She forms a body within her own body. God gives the spirit and she forms that body within her. And and so even though any way that we find to walk out that Torah with this stuff and with our time any of that is a kind of, of building process. Um, sometimes we actually see the Bible talking about the building of a home. And so one of the most important of these examples in Scripture is the building of the tabernacle in the second half of the first year of the Exodus. And so all that salvation and stumbling and, and, and grace in that first half of that first year of the Exodus, it leads to, right, the whole golden calf happens there, and the, the giving of the Torah is happening there over several trips of Moses going up Mount Sinai, coming down finally on Yom Kippur. Well, all of that 
leads to this wonderful winter season of building a home for God, a sukkah for God, in fact. Um, it was a pretty solid sukkah, probably the most solid of all of them there in the wilderness. So notice that at the end of the first year in the wilderness, or in the second half of that year, comes the building and the setting up of a house that God dwells in. And so in that same way, another example here of how we're actually seeing a building coming at the end of an epoch of time, King Solomon, uh, he comes at the end of his phase of Jewish history, this phase of a unified Israel, kind of ends with him. And he is the one who builds the, the temple, the, the physical permanent structure of the temple, that, that the tabernacle um, is, is a portable structure for. Well, it gets built with Solomon. And, um, and there are a lot of levels there with Solomon. He actually waits to inaugurate uh, the, the temple. What is he waiting for? We read about this in the Haftarah portions that are associated with Sukkot. He's waiting. He actually finishes it in the eighth month, and he waits 11 whole months to inaugurate that first temple so that he can do it at the festival of Sukkot, when all of Israel is coming and to, so that all of Israel can take part in this inauguration of the temple. And so a third one here is at the end of the Bible, the second to last chapter of the Bible, there we find the descent of a city, the New Jerusalem. And uh, the New Jerusalem, um, by the way, is it's presented kind of uh, like a building in its way. It's a cube, actually. It's 12,000 stadia long, 12,000 wide, and 12,000 high. Now, why do we need to be told how high the city is? It seems like a bit of an odd detail, but there it is. The, the Bible wants us to know that, that the New Jerusalem is a cube, a cube that de defines three-dimensional space. Well, we can see this idea of the cube that um, holds the spiritual inside. The cube, that's the physical vessel for holding the spiritual inside. We can see that in a couple of other ways that I think are important and we can keep in mind. Uh, one of those is tefillin, right? The prayer boxes. Tefillin, these are the boxes that are strapped to the head and to the arm. And those boxes are cubes, and they contain scripture within them. So the spiritual is contained in that physical cube. And so the cube really is, is the Torah's way of representing space in general, space, three-dimensional space. Um, to, in order to define a space, we need to have six sides, you know, up, down, left, right, front, back. So that kind of the minimum of that is a cube. And um, we'll see that too in another important place. The, the tzitzit, the tzitzit, uh, the, the, ca the four tassels that we are to affix to the four corners of our garments. 
you know, those, they hang down from the four corners. And so in that way, they're kind of enclosing at least the lower body in, in something like a cube. And um, what color are they to have in them? They're to have the color blue, a blue thread in those tassels. And why blue? It's because blue is the color of the spiritual realm, the color we see when we look upward into the sky. That's the color blue. And so the tzitzit, the tzitziot are saying that we are a holy people. What's inside this holy, this cube, this physical cube of these tzitziot is a, it's a holy being is what is inside those tassels that are hanging down and describing four, four corners, four sides. Well, and so, you know, it's just fascinating to think about. If we're walking around wearing tzitzit, we're walking around in a cube, a, a cube of righteousness. Um, it's kind of a beautiful thought there. And so have you ever wondered why it, it's important that both the tefillin and the tzitzit are mentioned in the Shema, in the extended Shema prayer? Of all things, why are these considered important enough to be a part of the central prayer of Judaism? Well, I'm sure there are many reasons, but what I see is that these two examples of making a physical vessel for the spiritual, they're there to be a constant reminder that all our spiritual learning, all our prayer, even all our spiritual pursuits, they come to nothing if we don't make practical vessels for this light to manifest in our lives. We are expressing our allegiance to God during the Shema, and the tefillin and the tzitziot are there to, to say to us, well, that's great. Um, it's great that you are saying that um, Adonai is your God and Adonai is one and your allegiance is to him. That's a wonderful spiritual expression, but make sure you also are crafting visible and tangible ways for this expression, this allegiance to manifest and, and work in the world, do work in the world until it gets that body in the world, it can't do anything in the world. And so we have here these two pictures of how mankind, um, how God directs mankind even to, um, to turn the spiritual into the physical by making a physical vessel that the spiritual can come inside, dwell inside, and do its thing in the world through well, let me bring out one last example of how we can see this idea of elevating three-dimensional space at the end of salvation. And so we'll actually start to see this theme more and more in Scripture once we become sensitized to it. But in Ephesians 3, Paul gives us a prayer that contains this theme. It's a prayer in which Paul is reaching, he's reaching to express his hopes that the Ephesians will get to the goal, that they will get to the end. And he's kind of stretching his mind to say this prayer for them. And he uses the idea of three-dimensional space, three-dimensional space that is filled with the Spirit um, as he's looking toward that end goal for the Ephesians. And so Paul prays that you, Ephesians, 
being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of a Messiah. That surpasses knowledge. <clears throat> Why? Why this? <laughs> so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul wants them to become a vessel for the fullness of God. And what comes to mind, to his mind, to express that, is to describe a three-dimensional space. He wants the saints to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Messiah, that they may be filled with the fullness of God. And so this is end-timey language here. He's saying, I want you to come to the goal, to the end of becoming a physical vessel for God. It means I want you to be linked together and, and working as a body. And so have you ever wondered why a prayer was added to the end of the uh, Amidah for the rebuilding of the temple? Again, it's a prayer that's added to the end of the Amidah. You actually, um, the cantor takes the steps back. He takes three steps forward and saying the Amidah, he takes three steps back. And then he concludes with this prayer that's been added for the rebuilding of the temple. It's really a prayer that the world will come to the goal, to the end, to the realization of salvation, the unification of the peoples in the kahal. We're working together in this transcendent way to form this body together. Um, but there at the end of the Amidah, this, um, this, this other central prayer of Judaism, is this rebuilding of this structure, this three-dimensional thing, this temple that is filled with the Spirit. And so, it's filled with the presence of God, in fact, the temple. Well, I'd like to add one further thought here connected to Yeshua as we finish out the teaching today. World history is a progression, just like the year is a progression, just like the salvation pattern is a progression, a circular progression, we could say. And so, we should be able to take the 7,000 years of human history and stretch them out on a circle like the calendar is on a circle. So each 1,000 years would be something like 50 days out of the 365 days, right? 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years. And so if we lay them out like that, we can see in human history certain key things that line up with certain things in the calendar, like the Moedim in the calendar. And so that's a fascinating study that I haven't done um, yet, but I'm sure we would see all kinds of relationships there um, to what's happening in human history. And so if we do that, we would see that the middle of human history would be the year 3,500 right? That's half of the 7,000 years of human history that we're given. And so if we're equating that to the calendar, what's halfway through the calendar? Well, that's Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah brings us halfway through the calendar. And so what does that mean about Sukkot? Where are we at 
with Sukkot in the calendar. Sukkot is 14 days after, it's half a month after Rosh Hashanah. So we come to that middle of the calendar, we go a little bit more, and we come to Sukkot in the calendar. And so if we do that same thing with human history, if we come 3,500 years into world history, and then we go a little bit more to the Sukkot of human history, what do we come to? Well, according to Chabad.org, Yeshua came around the year 3760. 3760. Just a little past the middle of our uh, 7,000 years of, of human history. And so, Yeshua comes at the Sukkot of human history a couple centuries after the exact middle of the 7,000 years of human history. I just think that's a beautiful, one more clue that Yeshua comes at Sukkot. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. I'm going to post a link to notes for this teaching below the video. May God bless each of us, this Sukkot, to be able to rejoice before him wholeheartedly. May we deeply know our oneness in Yeshua with our brothers and sisters during this season. May our faith be built in our Sukkahs, right? These uh, Sukkahs that can get blown around with the wind and they're, they're a place for growing our faith as well. And may we be empowered for this dark but exciting journey ahead, right? We're going to need that faith in the journey in the darkness. And may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.